Well, good morning. What a special time of worship this morning. Does our hearts good to see Bruce up here leading worship, amen? Yes. Uh, and we have uh, Mike and Christina Miosi here from Spread of Grace Ministries. Good to have them back here. Uh, Mike was here, I believe, in September and preached, and uh, we'll have him share uh, in Sunday school. Mike, welcome back from uh, Kenya. Uh, he's got a much to share, uh, and that'll be in Sunday school. If you please turn in your Bibles to the book of beginnings, Genesis chapter 1. We'll start in the book of beginnings, Genesis chapter 1. We'll be there shortly. If you looked at your bulletin this morning, you may have noticed a theme or maybe sort of a mini-series forming from my preaching over the past several months. Call it Meditations on the Lord. Last year, we looked at the light of the Lord. That is the Shekinah glory or dwelling presence of God as light, as a visible light. All throughout the Old Testament, in the Garden of Eden, on the face of Moses, in the tabernacle of Israel, in the temple of Jerusalem, God's glory was on display, which then came to us, revealed in the New Testament, in the person of Jesus Christ. And that light of the Lord, the Shekinah glory, is promised to be revealed in the future as well, revealed for the whole world to see in the second coming of Christ. So in the meantime, we walk, if you remember we were talking about this, we walk as children of that light, the light of the Lord. Then we examine the loving kindnesses of the Lord. Loving kindnesses, it's intentional, it's, it's plural, it's not the loving kindness of God because there are many. And we examine them in part to encourage us in our daily walk. So when we are tempted to doubt, uh, when we are going through difficult times, tempted to despair, wondering, does God really care? We are to look to his loving kindnesses, the loving kindnesses of the Lord. And then third, we walk through the laments of the Lord, the Lord's lamentations, where on three occasions we are told uh, in Scripture that Jesus wept. Our Lord lamented. And as we looked at each of them, we were refreshing our memories of Christ's cries, which then instructed us on how to lament, how to cry as a believer, how to deal with sorrow, to lament. This morning, it's the land of the Lord. And why there must be a future earthly kingdom of Christ. If you're taking notes this morning, you'll see that's your first fill in there. Why there must be a future earthly kingdom of Christ. Meditations on the Lord, his light, loving kindnesses, lamentations, and now land. Pastor Dave and I have been talking about this often in our meetings together, in part because this idea of the earthly, future earthly kingdom of Christ, it it comes up frequently in his messages on the minor prophets. Uh, so often in those Old Testament books like Joel and, and Obadiah and Micah and Nahum, and just wait till he gets to Zechariah, it's chock full of it. And I believe, and we believe here at Grace Life, that there is a strong case to be made for a future earthly reign of Jesus the Messiah. And that this is as good time as ever to make the case. The question we'll seek to answer is, does the Bible teach that there will be a future earthly kingdom after the return of Jesus, but prior to the eternal state? That would be prior to heaven and the lake of fire. And so from Genesis to Revelation, references are made to a coming earthly kingdom. And these references are promises from God that after Christ returns, he's truly going to reign as Lord upon the throne of David, on this earth. And again, it all takes place before the 
eternal state. But before we get into these five points, these five reasons, let's state what I hope is the obvious, something that I think we'll all agree with in here. It's not controversial. We don't take promises from God lightly. We don't take God's promises lightly. So a trusted friend makes you some kind of outrageously good offer. And even as your hopes run high that they will do it, truth be told, if you're honest, you may be a little skeptical. You might ask, is this for real? And your friend says, I'm not kidding. Really? Yes, really. Do you swear on your mother's grave? I don't know where people got that phrase. It's terrible. Do you swear on your mother's grave? But we say those kind of things. When telemarketers make offers, we ask for the documentation and we read the fine print, or at least we should. We don't really read that anymore, do we? There's an old saying, if somebody offers you something that sounds good, sounds too good to be true, it probably is. But a promise from God can be taken at face value. That means we accept it. We believe it without even thinking that it will not come true because his promises, they always do come true true. When Jesus spoke about the things that might raise a few eyebrows, he used the word verily or truly, and he would even emphasize the promised outcome by saying it twice. So he said to Peter, truly, truly, I tell you before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. I knew this was going to happen. I just said Peter, and I can't help but think of St. Peter's. You know what I'm talking about? So in our house, we all fill out the final four bracket. It's not here. I I don't know where I'm going. Okay. But we all fill it out. And right now, as it stands, I think I'm in last place. St. Peter's has destroyed my bracket. My oldest, who might have picked it because of Muppet characters, I don't know. And my mother, who I think picked it based on color, I don't know. They may actually win the final four tourney. Where was I? Yeah. Jesus emphasizing the promised outcome by saying it twice. Here's what he said to all of us. Verily, verily, or truly, truly, I tell you, one who believes has eternal life. You know, in both those instances, Jesus is inviting careful scrutiny into his promises. He's placing himself in the line of those prophets who spoke the words of God. They are all promises from the great promise keeper himself, God. And so this morning, from Genesis to Revelation, we're going to look at God's promising promises of a coming earthly kingdom. I want to take you on a jet tour of your Bibles this morning. That's more a warning than anything. We're going to hit a number of scriptures and make the case that there are many references to a coming earthly kingdom in both the Old and New Testaments. And hopefully by now you've made your way to Genesis one Genesis chapter 1. So here we begin in the book of beginnings with a decree from God. It's an official declaration. It's a mandate that God's creation would be the realm in which mankind would rule. The kingdom mandate of Genesis 1 verses 26 to 28. Let me read this here. Then God said, let us, this is the council of the plural Godhead consisting of three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the 
cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. A couple of things to take away from this primary passage. Man has a task to complete. First, he's to multiply, it says, and, and fill the earth. So God's plan for humanity involves more than just Adam and Eve, right? They were created to, uh, to produce other image bearers who too would share their God-given responsibilities. And then second here, God instructs them to rule and subdue the creation, to have dominion over it. Psalm 115, 16 declares, the heavens are the Lord's, but the earth, that's key, but the earth he has given to the human race. The realm of this rule is earth, it's not heaven. And this quickly becomes evident in chapter 2 when you see Adam naming the animals, which was a demonstration of dominion. So the kingdom is an earthly kingdom with the first Adam as its established king. And this was to be manifested in every area. So agriculture, uh, architecture, domestication of of animals, harnessing of energy and, and natural resources, and it goes on and on and on. If you have a study Bible, you may see a reference to Psalm 8 because Psalm 8 functions as a commentary on this passage. Let me just read to you Psalm 8, 6, which says, You make him to rule over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. But see, the the kingdom program and mankind's role, it took a dramatic turn for the worse with the fall. Adam and Eve sinned by disobeying God. And death followed, and it ruptured the relationship with him. Call it what you like. It's an act of rebellion. It's, it's an act of independence. And instead of ruling the earth successfully, man himself would be swallowed up by the ground, returning to the dust upon death. It was a kingdom failure. A kingdom failure. Man's sin was a kingdom failure. Look at Genesis 3.19. 3.19. We see this failure. By the sweat of your face, you will eat bread till you return to the ground. Because from it, you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Man still possessed the image of God and the mandate to rule and subdue remained. But the task is now doomed. Fortunately, in that same chapter, by the grace of God, in verse 15, God offered hope. It's God who declares that one day the coming seed of the woman, that being Jesus Christ, the last Adam, would deliver a fatal blow to the power behind the deceiving serpent, that's namely Satan. By the way, if you look at Genesis 5, just peek at Genesis 5 for a moment. This is a testimony, it testifies that man does not successfully rule nature. We like to call Genesis 5 the and he died chapter. Verse 5, and he died. Verse 8, and he died. Verse 11, 14, 17, 20, and he died. Which leads us to the second kingdom failure here, and this is Israel's disobedience. So man's sin, and then Israel's disobedience. If you'll move to Exodus 19, turn to Exodus 19. We jump to the nation, specifically Israel, and we see much the same. 
Look at what God declares in Exodus 19, 5 and 6. God's encounter with Moses and the, and the Hebrew people at Mount Sinai, it's a strategic moment for they become a nation and a kingdom. Exodus 19, verse 5 says where God says, Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. A kingdom and a nation. God would reign and rule through the nation of Israel, but Israel would not be a kingdom simply for its own sake. Israel's place of privilege would be also to bless other nations. And it looked possible for a while, if you'll turn over to 1 Kings. I warned you we're going to move through here. 1 Kings chapter 11. It looked possible under the reign of Solomon, the Abrahamic promises of land, sea, and universal blessings were well on their way to fulfillment. Israel's borders are growing. Gentile powers are seeking Solomon's wisdom. You remember Queen of Sheba? But then you have 1 Kings 11. 1 Kings 11, verse 4. When Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart away after other gods. you got two problems right there. Wives and other gods with a lowercase g. And his heart, therefore, his heart was not wholly devoted to the Lord his God as the heart of David his father had been. Verse 6. Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not follow the Lord fully as David his father had done. So here in this text, we have a king, the King Solomon, who imparted wisdom to Gentile powers, and he's, he was now forsaking the God of Israel to worship foreign gods. Foreign women influenced his heart. Israel's progress was put into full reverse, and the nation's witness was gone since they became like all the other nations in their idolatry. You've been getting background historical information as a bulletin insert with every message that Pastor Dave has um, been preaching from the Minor Prophets. You've, you've seen the list of kings and kingdoms involved with uh, idolatry, um, uh, disobedience, child sacrifices, star worship, uh, all kinds of stuff, even involvement in the occult. You know, only eight of Judah's 20 kings can be qualified as someone good. And the northern tribes of Israel, they experienced 19, 19 consecutive bad kings, all the way up to the Assyrian captivity in 722 B.C. What happened? How, how did Israel go from such hope and, and promise to such disobedience and, and even dismal conditions? The answer is the same as that it's found in the Garden of Eden. They did evil by ignoring the commands of God. Man's sin and Israel's disobedience have the same results. Both failed to establish a successful earthly kingdom. However, the demise and the fall of man and Israel, it doesn't mean that there would be an end to God's kingdom plan. And that's because we know that he is faithful, right? He is, he is true, his word of promise is sure. In every relationship with his people, God is faithful. I have, for as almost long as I can remember, had some kind of corrective lenses. Many of you might not even know it that I, I wear glasses, but I wear them usually early in the morning and, and late in the evening, and I've had contacts for years. Well, like, 
all of you, we're getting older and my eyes are getting a little weaker. And uh, it's been interesting for me because both what I see far away and what I see up close is changing for me. Both of them are changing, not just one. And so I, I received a prescription, and I, I wasn't aware you could really do this, and it was, sounded pretty wild at first, but I have one contact in that actually helps me see things closer, and I have one contact, you familiar with this, that actually maybe you are and I wasn't, that sees far away. It seems a little strange at first, and you put them in, and it's a little strange, but your brain clicks, hopefully, and you start to see things a little better. I think this is the right approach to our reading of Scripture as well. We need help with both. I mean, up close, verse by verse, we see the human heart is desperately wicked. I mean, really up close when we look at that. But the big picture, the big picture tells us a different story. God is a promise keeper. He's, he's sovereign. And he has a sovereign plan. A glorious restoration of the kingdom to Israel with blessings to the Gentiles. In other words, a future earthy, earthly kingdom of Christ. And that brings us to number two here. Why there must be such a kingdom. Making this case here. Old Testament prophets and promises. In the Old Testament of our Bibles, we, we see prophets on the scene with a promise from God of a, a coming earthly kingdom. If you would make your way over to Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 2. We'll be in Isaiah for some time. Right? Isaiah 2. Isaiah 2 addresses the coming kingdom and the the roles of Israel and the nations in it. It it predicts international harmony among nations as a result of the Messiah's reign from Jerusalem. Isaiah chapter 2, beginning in verse 2. Now, it will come about that in the last days, the last days is a common phrase found in the Old and New Testaments, to refer to the events following Jesus' return, his second coming. In the last days, the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains and will be raised above the hills. This is Mount Zion and the temple in Jerusalem. And all the nations will stream to it. And many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us concerning his ways, And that we may walk in his paths. For the law will go forth from Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And he will judge between the nations and will render decisions for many peoples. So the Lord will be making political judgments and decisions for these nations. And they will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. So money and materials are going to be devoted to peaceful pursuits. Nation will not lift up sword against nation And never again will they learn war. Universal peace will exist. Ah, peace. I wonder what that would be like, right? If I were a betting man, and I most certainly am not, I'd wager that everyone here knows at least one Hebrew word. The word shalom. Shalom. You hear it in greetings. You hear it in blessings. It's usually translated as peace, but it means much more. It means peace. It means harmony, contentment, uh, freedom, completeness, well-being, prosperity, health, safety, love, shalom. Sounds good, doesn't it? Nothing that blesses a life is missing. This is shalom. 
And the prophet Isaiah here is predicting a coming kingdom with Jerusalem as the capital city and nations streaming to the city to know the ways of God. It's a time of shalom, a time of international harmony as weapons of warfare aren't needed anymore. And we know this is yet to come because such conditions of an earthly kingdom with international harmony, they've never occurred in history. Not in the past. It's certainly not in our present day. And so it's directly connected to the literal return of Jesus the Messiah. Sticking with the prophet Isaiah, look at chapter 9. Look at chapter 9. Here's another example, a familiar passage for Christians who rightly identify this section with Jesus Christ. Isaiah 9. Jesus is the son who is given to us, and this section also has some important implications in regard to the coming kingdom of God. Isaiah 9. Again, you you know these verses uh, 6 and 7. We usually end it with Merry Christmas. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it, And to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Like other kingdom prophecies of Isaiah, this this prediction is rooted in what we would call the Davidic covenant. The Davidic covenant where God promised that the throne of, of, of David's kingdom would be established forever. It's 2 Samuel 7. And as we just read, the individual who will rule comes as a child as a a son. And you know, the nativity accounts of Matthew and Luke, they testify to this. Jesus, the, the son of God, will be born as a babe in the manger. Also hear the declaration that the government shall be upon his shoulders, and of his kingdom there will be no end. This, this reveals for the first time in history, there will be a righteous government under a righteous king with righteous results. Can you imagine that? A righteous government, a righteous king with righteous results. As I said before, a number of uh, minor prophets also tell of this time, and I'm intentionally staying away from those 12 texts since Pastor Dave's preaching through them currently. And that's, that's okay because there are many Old Testament texts stating that the Lord will return and reign over all the earth, including its nations. Prophets declare it. Promises pledge it. Look, it's, it's going to happen. It's going to happen. And nothing indicates that these promises would be fulfilled in any other way but literally. These passages reveal a coming earthly kingdom of God under the Messiah. And just think about this. His first coming was fulfilled, and it was fulfilled literally. Why wouldn't his second coming and then his subsequent reign be filled literally too? I just don't see any wiggle room here. It's a literal literal fulfillment. Here's another, chapter 11, Isaiah chapter 11. Verse 1, then a, a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. 
verse 4, but the righteousness he will but with righteousness he will judge the poor and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. So there's going to be a time there's going to be a time when a righteous descendant of Jesse, and that's obviously Jesus, will decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. Again, think about this. Has that happened in the past? No. Is it in the present? No, it's future. These predictions are just too specific, along with preconditions that have yet to occur, and that gets us to number three here of why there must be such a kingdom. There are specific predictions and preconditions. My point is this. There are predictions of a kingdom with conditions better than the present, but still not perfect. And so these must be fulfilled in an era different from our current one. They cannot be fulfilled in the coming eternal state because the conditions prescribed are not entirely perfect. I need your help here. We're going to have a a little fun here for a moment. Okay, Bible nerd fun, but we're going to have a little fun here. Uh, Turn to Isaiah chapter 65. I don't know if you're familiar with chapter 65. Hopefully you will be after this morning. We're going to take the Isaiah 65 test. It's one of my favorite go-to passages for this subject. I know some would think that maybe it would be Revelation 20, and I'll talk about that here at the end of the message, but it's not Revelation 20. It's Isaiah 65. Isaiah 65, and look at verse 17. I need to get this piece qualified out of the way for a moment here. It says in verse 17 in Isaiah 65, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth. Admittedly, when you first read that, that can confuse people because as new heavens and a new earth, it's a phrase which sounds similar to the description of the eternal state, right? In Revelation 21, chapters 21 and 22. Yet the context of the next several verses is clearly describing an intermediate, intermediary state. And that's okay. It's not the only time we see something like this. So for example, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. So believer, you are a new creature in Christ. Are you completely a new creature in Christ at this moment? No, no, it's not yet fully complete. There will be a day in which you will be glorified and you will see him as he really is, meaning you won't have any sin and you will be completely that creature in new Christ. But right now, We work out our salvation with fear and trembling in the sense that we grow in Christ. We should be growing in Christ, progressive sanctification that takes place. We have the Spirit indwelling within us, the Holy Spirit, as believers, but we still have the battle of the flesh. So as new creatures, we're not yet fully complete, and neither is 6517. The conditions that follow, they are described here as far better than what is experienced in this fallen world, but they are not yet the perfect eternal state. Okay, now for the test. So that would be uh, verses 18 to 20. Beginning in verse 18, let me read these, but be glad and rejoice forever in what I create, for behold, I create Jerusalem for rejoicing and her people for gladness. Jerusalem, 
The significance of transformed and, and improved conditions are in Jerusalem. That's what's being emphasized in verse 18. Verse 19, I, I will also rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. And there will no longer be heard in her the voice of weeping and the sound of crying. So there's not going to be any weeping. There's not going to be any crying in Jerusalem. And here it is. Verse 20. Love verse 20. No longer will there be in it an infant who lives but a few days. Or an old man who does not live out his days For the youth will die at the age of 100, and the one who does not reach the age of 100 will be thought accursed. There's some of you right now going, I've read through the Bible. I don't remember reading that verse, right? Verse 20, during this period, babies will be born, but infant mortality is non-existent. You see that, right? No longer an infant who lives but a few days. And no old man is going to die prematurely. But what's interesting is they will die. There will be some cases of death. For example, if a youth does not live to at least 100, that kid, (laughs) that kid will be considered accursed. In other words, it can be like, did God do something? He didn't live to be 100 years old. So help me out here. We know this is not a past reference, it's a prophecy. And babies died in the past, so what about the present? Has this occurred yet? I mean, are we experiencing this now? Of course not. Of course not. And and how about a person dying at age 100 being considered accursed? At the age of 100, somebody dies, do we ask what happened? Somebody dies at 100 and you read that, the first thing you don't ask is what went wrong? No, it's the opposite. I think not. And, and we know this is not the eternal state because Revelation 21.4 tells us there'll be no death. So Isaiah 65.20 must be fulfilled in an era that is different from our current period. It's distinct from the past, from the present, and the eternal state. This text is referring to the promised future earthly kingdom of Christ. Here's the second part of the Isaiah 65 uh, test. Look at verses 21 to 25 here. Verse 21, they will build houses and inhabit them. They will also plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They will not build and another inhabit. They will not plant and another eat. For as the lifetime of a tree, so will be the days of my people. And the Middle East trees endured for many hundreds of years. Think of the cedars of Lebanon. You can look that up on your own. And my Chosen ones will wear out the work of their hands. They will not labor in vain or bear children for calamity. For they are the offspring of those blessed by the Lord and their descendants with them. So hard workers will not have the fruit of their labors taken from them. Those who plant will enjoy the fruit of their labors. This is talking about fairness here. This is talking about uh, production. It's talking about uh, population. What's missing here is corruption. What's missing here is is mistreatment. Verse 24. It will also come to pass that before they call, I will answer. And while they are still speaking, I will hear. So imagine having the Lord Jesus reigning physically on this planet right now. Imagine having 
that kind of access. I mean, literally, he's on the planet. And this verse is saying he will know every care and concern before we even have them. Verse 25. The wolf and the lamb will graze together and the lion will eat straw like the ox and dust will be the serpent's food. They will do no evil or harm in all my holy mountains, says the Lord. Animals that normally don't get along do meat eating lions or eating straw. The animal kingdom will exist in, in harmony. It's, it's a restoring of the created order. It's not past. It's certainly not present, and it's not eternal state. Again, this is speaking of an intermediate kingdom. Isaiah 65, it passes the test. But it's far, far from being the only passage. Isaiah has so many. They're chock full. Isaiah is chock full of statements, references, promises, preconditions to this kingdom. And so is the entire Old Testament. As a matter of fact, when I have this conversation with individuals, it's, it's interesting because often they will go to a passage, which we'll talk about in a moment, Revelation 20, instead of the Old Testament, 70% of our Bibles. The idea of an earthly kingdom that comes after Jesus' return, but before the eternal state, is consistent with several Old Testament passages. But this doctrine that Christ will return again and establish his kingdom is a doctrine that is found in both Testaments. And that brings us to number four, New Testament reaffirmations. Would you turn to Matthew chapter 19? Matthew 19. This is a, a great section of Scripture. Here, Peter is asking what reward he and the others will receive for following Jesus. I am rooting for St. Peter's this afternoon, by the way. My bracket's gone, so I'm rooting for him. Matthew 19:27 the verse before the one we're looking at here Peter said to him behold we have left everything and followed you what then will there be for us it it may seem like a self-serving question but i find it interesting that that Jesus doesn't outright rebuke it instead he affirms reaffirms a promise in verse 28 and Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you that you who have followed me in the regeneration when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you also shall sit upon twelve thrones, judging the tribes, the twelve tribes of Israel. You know what this means, right? Jesus is placing his Davidic throne and kingdom reign in the future. And then he speaks of the restored nation of Israel. God's not done with Israel yet. Not yet. Plus, there will be believers sitting with Christ governing. We see something similar in Acts chapter 1. Head over to Acts chapter 1, please. Verse 6. Acts chapter 1. We are often fascinated by the last words of people. Before slipping into a nine-day long coma, Winston Churchill uttered these last words. I don't know if you've heard this one before. He said, this is his final words. I'm bored with it all. It's a good statement. Emily Dickinson's final words were, I must go in, the fog is rising. And Nathan Hale, you know this one? I only, my only regret that I have one life to lose for my country. 
With Acts, we have the last words of Jesus before he ascends to heaven. And, and Jesus had remained with his disciples for 40 days, as we know. And, and what he said consistently had to do with, with one thing. One main thing, the kingdom. He was always aiming towards the kingdom. In verses 4 and 5, he commands them to stay in Jerusalem because he's got the coming ministry of the Holy Spirit that's going to occur not many days from now. And what do they ask Jesus? Verse 6. Lord, is it at this time that you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? The apostles are, are rightly expecting a restoration of the kingdom to Israel. And the question of timing is not a what question, but really a when question. When will this literal earthly reign come? And it's interesting here that Jesus doesn't correct their view of an earthly kingdom. No, he assumes their accuracy and then answers by reminding them that the exact timing is in God's hands. What does he say? He says, it's not for you to know the time, which the the father is fixed by his own authority. When, 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 when? None of your beeswax. It's above your pay grade. But you're accurate. It's going to happen. You know, several other passages that we're not going to turn to place the reign, New Testament passages place the reign of Uh, Jesus and the saints in the future. You've got 1 Corinthians 6. You've got 2 Timothy 2. These are both great ones that reaffirm the Old Testament promises. But let's jump into the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 5. Only two passages in Revelation we're going to look at this morning in our time remaining. But Revelation chapter 5. About 60 years into the church age, this is A.D. 90, the Apostle John receives and he records these visions concerning events to come. And, and he's allowed to see a scene in heaven where there are 24 elders and they sang a new song. And Revelation 5.10, it, it affirms the promise. Look at 5.10. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. The ones Jesus purchased with his blood, that's verse 9, are a kingdom. They are positionally related to the kingdom because they know Jesus. And this status leads to an actual kingdom reign. And they will reign upon the earth. Quickly here, I want to get to Revelation 20. Look at this verse carefully. We'll see three truths about this kingdom. First, The saints are destined to reign with Christ. When Jesus reigns, the saints will also reign. Jesus will share his kingdom authority with his followers. And second, its future will reign. Will reign. The kingdom reign of Jesus is yet to come. And third, where is it going to take place? Upon the earth. Upon the earth. Messiah's kingdom is on the earth, not heaven. Remember from Genesis 1 earlier, the kingdom mandate, the reign of Jesus and the saints must be in the realm of the original creation that was given to man. Jesus is going to succeed where Adam failed on earth, upon the earth. We are talking about a a distinct age of time, and it's not found in the past. It's not found in in the present or eternal state. 
This brings us to our final point for this morning on why there must be a future earthly kingdom of Christ, and it's Revelation 20, the final text. Revelation 20. Would you turn there, please? Larry read that for us this morning, and we'll look at it briefly. Revelation chapter 20. While you're turning there, you may have noticed a couple things in this message this morning. I've stayed pretty close, pretty focused in on one major end times event. Not the rapture, nor the, the tribulation period, nor the second coming of Christ, but the reign that follows. And as I said earlier, I didn't go to Revelation 20 first. The land of the Lord, a future earthly kingdom, it's not a one-text doctrine. It's something that as we begin to look at that, you know, it's almost like when you look for a certain car or you get a certain car and then you start driving and you see how many people have them on the road and you didn't realize it. They're everywhere. Read your Old Testament and you'll go, it is everywhere. Pastor Dave's preaching through the minor prophets and we're seeing it everywhere. But not just the old, the new as well. And so there was no need really to turn to Revelation 20 yet. And because of this, I've yet to state the length of the kingdom's existence, and that's number five. The length of time is, is a thousand years. And this is where we get the term millennial reign of Christ. I didn't even use that word yet. Millennium's not in the Bible. It originates from a Latin term, meaning 1,000 years. And again, Larry read this text for us this morning, but make note of the repeated use of, of 1,000. It's six times. For a thousand years, verse 2. Until the thousand years were completed, verse 3. Reigned with Christ for a thousand years, end of verse 4. Until the thousand years were completed, verse 5. Will reign with him for a thousand years, verse 6. When the thousand years are completed, verse 7. There are individuals that will make the argument, you really, you know what, Revelation 20, see, you, you, can't, you can't go there. You don't have it. That's your text and you can't, and I'm going to come at it in a moment. I don't need Revelation 20. We don't need that. It gives us the length of time is what it gives us. There's plenty of Old Testament, Isaiah 65 alone. There's plenty of Old Testament passages and New Testament reaffirmations that make the case. But to address the numbers piece of this where, where people poke sometimes, you know, whenever a high number thousand is used in Revelation, in the book of Revelation, it, it refers to something definite. 144,000, 1,260 days, 1,600 stadia, 12,000 stadia. While there are some who would argue that this is just a symbolic figure, let me say it's highly unlikely that a symbolic number would be repeated three times, four times, five times, six times. There are biblical expressions that are usually employed for symbolism or, or even innumerable values and indefinite time. Plus, taking a look at the specific context of the passage. You know, furthermore, there's not even a, a single reference in Scripture when year is used with a number that is meaning it's not to be taken literally as the number expressed. And that initial argument that will come will go, well, Pastor, what about 2 Peter 3.8? 2 Peter 3.8, with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. The meaning is clear. The amount of earthly time that passes is of no consequence from God's timeless perspective. 
what might seem like a, a long time to believers is actually short, like one day in God's sight. To say a day can equal a thousand years is an exegetical fallacy. You wouldn't do this with any other book or document. So why would you play with Scripture this way? You know, technically, it's called an illegitimate totality transfer, where the context of one passage, it's, it's picked up and it's, it's transferred to another passage without any regard for the passage that you're studying that's being exegeted. Don't do that. Don't do that. Don't twist Scripture. Make every effort to present yourself to God, a worker, approved, unashamed, right? Rightly dividing the truth. I hope this has been helpful in some way to you this morning to to give some clarity in this area of end times. I think you can see why Pastor Dave and I were talking about this, and this would be an appropriate time to cover this because of the number of texts that we, we're hitting as he's preaching through the minor prophets, and these are popping for us to know just a little more about this. And it's why we at Grace Life believe in the imminent, important word, imminent return, could happen at any moment, of Christ for his church and a literal future millennial kingdom. There I use the word millennial. In fact, you have this excerpt from our church's constitution at the bottom of your notes in your bulletin. You'll see it there. Um, The entire constitution is available at our website, gracelifepa.org. That website's on the back of your bulletin as well. There's much for us to dwell on as we deal with our own difficulties, yes? And having a proper and biblical view of the kingdom, it it gives us a, a clear understanding of God's purposes for us, for our relationships with others, this planet, and a real hope for a wonderful future. It helps us to long for Christ's return. You know, Revelation 19.14 says that there's going to be a day when he returns that we're going to march behind him. We're all going to be behind him. Well, as believers in Christ, what does that mean for our relationships now? What are we being petty about? You know, all our hearts are going to be corrected, mine, yours, and we're going to march behind the King of King, Lords, Lord of Lords, into the land of the Lord. How amazing will that be? And you know, when he comes in that second coming, it's not as some babe born in a dirty manger. He will be coming as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Revelation nineteen sixteen. And then we will serve and reign with him. What a millennium that will be. We get consumed with just these years. Can you imagine a thousand years? And having him here, having him here on the earth, when the land and the seed promises from the time of Abraham are fulfilled, when the king and throne aspects of the Davidic covenant come to fruition, the coming millennium, the land of the Lord, is something that all of God's people should anticipate. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, our great promise keeper, we are thankful for your word and the many prophecies that are uh, contained within it, 
So many have already been fulfilled in Christ in his, in his first coming and his, his death and his resurrection for all who would believe. And we pray that if there's there anyone here this morning that does not know you in a real and personal way, that today would be that day that they would place their faith in you alone, repent of their sin and trust in you for that forgiveness. For Father, you are the, uh, the author of human history. You are our creator, God. You are sovereign in, in all things. And so we await the earthly return and reign of Jesus Christ. We long for the day of your son's return when the whole world will know that he is king of kings and Lord of lords, a day when the God of this age is dethroned, when we can truly say and experience shalom. And we say with the Apostle, Paul, Paul, uh, Apostle John, even so, come, Lord Jesus. We thank you for this great hope. We will experience the glories of the, uh, the millennial kingdom, and then on to the new heaven and new earth for all eternity. Thank you, Jesus. And as we were about to sing these words this morning, you are our beautiful Savior, Lord of all nations, Son of God and Son of Man, glory and honor, praise and adoration, now and forevermore be thine. In Christ's name we pray, amen.